throughout our series, um, looking at the life and the ministry of the prophet Elijah, we have had to endure the, um, the company of the royal couple, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And they have shown themselves to be thoroughly wicked and profane in their attitudes and their actions. And this morning, um, our sense of outrage toward this terrible twosome um, is likely to be ratcheted up as we contemplate the story of Naboth's vineyard, which we will find in 1 Kings chapter 21. So that's going to be our reading, our text for this morning, the story of Naboth's vineyard, 1 Kings chapter 21. So we'll read that together just now. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel his wife said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up, I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed a seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, 
Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I am going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jerob Jeroboam, son of Nabat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. This morning's reading then began with the words, some time later. And that begs the question, later than what? And the answer to that is that the episode that we've just read involving Naboth's vineyard follows, naturally enough, the events recorded in 1 Kings chapter 20, where we're told that in that chapter that the Lord had given Ahab a magnificent double military victory 
over Israel's enemy, the king of Aram, who had twice invaded Israel, seeking out the country's wealth. But rather than put the king of Aram to the sword, as he ought to have done, Ahab treated him like a long-lost brother and made a treaty with him which restored cities which had been forfeited by the king of Aram's father. And for that act of disobedience and folly, an unnamed prophet, not this time Elijah, had pronounced that Ahab would in due course lose his own life. Sullen and angry, we're told, Ahab retreated to his palace in Samaria. And it's against that backcloth that some time later, the incident involving Naboth's vineyard occurs. So I'm going to divide up um, the chapter that we have just read together. I'm going to divide it up into three sections. The first one is the lengthiest section, verses 1 to 16, which I've called a dastardly deed. Um, some of you are no doubt of a vintage where you're able to recall um, Dick Dastardly, Dick Dastardly, from the kids' cartoon Wacky Races. Dick Dastardly was the, the driver who, um, assisted by his equally villainous dog, Muttley, good old Muttley, would resort to all sorts of underhand methods in order to secure the lead in the race. Of course, wacky races was just a bit of fun. But unfortunately, there was nothing, nothing comical about the dastardly deed that Queen Jezebel resorted to in order to secure the prize of Naboth's cherished vineyard. But we do need to back up a little before we consider then Jezebel's act of treachery. First, Ahab approaches Naboth, whose vineyard is very close to his summer residence in Jezreel. Ahab reckons, do you know what? This would make a splendid <coughs> vegetable garden where I could grow my asparagus and my British queens. And he makes what at face value appears to be a generous offer. Naboth can have a supposedly better vineyard elsewhere or if he prefers a cash sale, then the king's bankers will be in touch. But the problem for Ahab is that Naboth's vineyard isn't on the market. Indeed, Naboth is absolutely determined not to sell. You see, this land, this vineyard, had been in his family's um, in his family for generations. And moreover, the Mosaic law stipulated that no Israelite 
should ever sell the land that he had inherited, save he was in dire poverty. And there is no hint in the text that Naboth was, you know, on sort of welfare benefits. Naboth's conscience basically was not up for sale. And this sends Ahab into a strop and a sulk. Like a petulant child, he retires to his bedroom and refuses to eat his meals. Enter the wicked queen. Ahab, why are you so morose? Why won't you eat your freshly prepared cuisine? And when he explains why, and noticeably he doesn't acknowledge Naboth's religious scruples behind his refusal to sell, Jezebel rebukes her husband for his weakness and then swings into action with her wicked plot to secure the cherished orchard. Writing letters in Ahab's name with the royal seal attached onto them, the elders and nobles of Naboth city are ordered to proclaim a fast day and seat the unsuspecting Naboth at a prominent place among the people. Two scoundrels are to be sat directly opposite Naboth, and they will be told to testify that Naboth has cursed both God and the king, whereupon he is to be stoned to death. Now, that might send off bells in your head. Have I heard something similar to that about scoundrels being coerced into giving false testimony to secure a sentence of death against someone on the grounds that they have committed blasphemy? Well, I refer you to Jesus' experience as recorded in Matthew chapter 26. The grandees comply with their queen's command and poor Naboth is taken outside the city and killed. And again, that might remind you of another. Hebrews 13 verse 13. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. When Jezebel hears the news that her scheme has succeeded, she is delighted to relay the news to her weakling of a husband. And Ahab emerges from his bedchamber and goes down from his palace to seize the orchard. What a heinous act this was, a gross abuse of power. But it was one that was going to boomerang upon the royal couple and guess who it is who is going to be the herald of their impending judgment? None other than their familiar foe, the man of God, the prophet Elijah. And that brings us in then to our second section, verses 17 to 26, which I have called then a fitting judgment. So Elijah 
uh, is once more brought into action. He's instructed by the Lord to go back to Jezreel where he'll find Ahab enjoying the fruit, perhaps literally, of Jezebel's wicked plot. Elijah is to confront Ahab with the horror of what he has done. And evidently, Ahab has colluded in Jezebel's conspiracy, or at the very least, he must have known what Jezebel had done and how it was that he was now inheriting the, the, the um, orchard. And when he finds Ahab, Elijah is greeted as my enemy. And by the way, it's reckoned that this episode that we were looking at today was probably about seven years since their previous face-to-face encounter, where Ahab had a similarly nice greeting for Elijah, you troubler of Israel. But neither is Elijah in the mood for exchanging pleasantries with the king. Elijah tells it as it is. Ahab is guilty of selling himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, for which he is now going to suffer or will soon suffer disaster. Not only will Ahab himself lose his life, his son will also die. And his bloodline, his royal bloodline, is going to die out. Something that was considered to be a tragedy and a disgrace in Israel. And in this respect, Ahab will then suffer the same fate as two of his predecessors as kings of Israel, Jeroboam and Basha. And if we had time, we could look at the, the verses in Kings regarding those two, those two um, men, but their bloodlines were eliminated as well. All their descendants were killed as punishment for their idolatry. And this is what's going to happen to Ahab and to his <coughs> um, bloodline. But what is more, Jezebel is going to suffer a terrible fate as punishment for her evil conspiracy. After all, she was the brains behind it. Her body is going to be devoured by dogs by the wall of Jezreel. And no animal was more despised in Israel than a wild dog. So to be eaten by such a canine beast was considered to be the ultimate disgrace and death. Moreover, dogs and birds of the air would gorge upon any who belonged to Ahab's family name. And then our final section, just the last two verses, verses 27 to 28, which I have called then a suspended sentence. And this third section, I, if you're on the same page as myself, you will have been surprised at that ending. It's not nearly, it sort of comes out of left field. It's not what you expect. We read of Ahab responding to Elijah's pronouncement of his doom by tearing his clothes, 
putting on sackcloth and fasting, all acts that are associated with repentance. Moreover, we're told that Ahab went around meekly. And Yahweh tells Elijah that due to Ahab's response, judgment will be deferred until a later day. There is to be no immediate death. So what are we to make of this? Is this genuine repentance on this wicked king's part? Well, we'll defer judgment on that until we consider the last or that we consider this morning's lesson. So you're going to have to hold your breath just for now, but not for very long, because we're now turning to our lessons and I have the usual three lessons. Number one, what was the true cause of the, what is the true cause rather, what is the true cause of the abuse of power? Through Jezebel's uh, conspiracy or machinations, Ahab took what was not his to take. The vineyard belonged to Naboth and to his descendants, but Ahab wanted it for himself. And Jezebel came up with a wicked plan to get it for him. The king's authority was misused. And as a result, an innocent man lost not just his family property, he lost his own life. And that is what the abuse of power looks like. Exploiting your position, coercing others in pursuit of selfish outcomes. And today, the world in which we live, we hear an awful, awful lot about the abuse of power. The abuse of power is absolutely central to what is known as critical theory. And it is critical theory that lies behind so much of today's thinking and what is influencing policymakers today in our world. People are divided into two groups. There is the, the oppressor, and then there is the oppressed or the victim group. And thus we are told today that white people are the oppressor and people of color are the oppressed. Or males are the oppressor and females are their victims. Or straight people are the oppressor and gays and transgender people are their victims. Or the able are the oppressor and the disabled are the victims. Or white evangelicals are the oppressor and religious minorities are their victims. Now, it would be wrong to deny that oppression can and does occur in all of those contexts. But this sort of structural oppressor-oppressed analysis is a flawed diagnosis 
of the ills of society. There is a far more profound explanation for the abuse of power. Namely, the abuse of power is the consequence of living in a fallen, broken world. A world that has rebelled against its creator's rule. A world where sin prevails. And the answer to the problem of oppression is not some sort of social revolution as advocated by a leftist ideology. The answer to oppression is repentance from personal sin by embracing the teaching of Jesus Christ. It is only through personal salvation that society is going to be transformed for the better. For it is only through personal salvation that the underlying problem of man's sin is dealt with. Those who genuinely observe the ways of Jesus Christ will cease to be amongst society's oppressors, irrespective of their skin color or their position in society. Second lesson, the perfect justice of God. It is commonplace today to be told that the Christian God is unjust, that he favors some people or some nations over others, that he condemns people to hell, um, he, he condemns people of other faiths to hell, or he condemns non-religious but very moral upstanding people to hell, and so on and so on. We hear it all the time now. God is not just. Your Christian God is actually a source of injustice, not an upholder of justice. But God is a God of perfect justice. And one of the principles of God's judgment of man is that the punishment will fit the crime. That is the idea of punishment being condign. The punishment will fit the crime. And we see this in high definition with the fate of both Ahab and Jezebel. Firstly, Ahab himself. He had been told by Elijah that in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. And furthermore, Ahab was told that his royal bloodline would cease. And if we had time, which we don't, but if we had time, we could look at chapter 22 of 1 Kings and chapter 9 of 2 Kings. And we would discover that dogs did indeed lick up Ahab's blood, whilst his son who succeeded him, Joram, was assassinated. And in a beautiful irony, his dead body was tossed for burial into what had been Naboth's vineyard. That was where he was buried. 
And what of the wicked queen Jezebel herself? She was thrown over the palace wall. She was trampled underfoot. And her corpse was so ravaged by wild dogs that only her skull, feet and hands remained. The punishment fitted the crime. And so it always is with God's justice. Now, of course, in this life, there will not be perfect justice. But in eternity, there will be perfect justice. The punishment will always fit the crime. Final lesson, the futility of mere reformation. So I told you to hold your breath regarding making a judgment on the matter of Ahab's repentance. So you can all now take a big breath and again, you're okay. What we must remember is that the writer of First Kings concludes, and we read it, there was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols. What a horrendous epitaph. And yet, and yet, had Ahab genuinely repented of his sin, God would have forgiven him. That is the mercy of God. And the fact that the Lord was willing to defer punishment in response to Ahab's apparent contrition speaks so much of his mercy. But the reality was that Ahab's repentance was short-lived and ultimately must be considered as superficial. Significantly, there is no hint that Ahab sought to make restitution to Naboth's descendants or next of kin. There is no hint that he attempted to get rid of Jezebel. There is no hint that he sought to put an end to Israel's idolatry. And by the next chapter of First Kings, we read of how Ahab hates the prophet Micaiah because he speaks the truth to power, telling him what the Lord says and not what Ahab wants to hear. As Roger Ellsworth comments, Ahab feared judgment, but he did not hate his sin. Ultimately, the Lord knew Ahab's heart, and that is why the sentence of death and extermination of his royal line was not rescinded. It was merely deferred. And we and I must understand that God will never be satisfied by anything that stops short of genuine repentance for our sin. Mere remorse, feeling sorry about my sin, will not do. Contrition is not enough. Neither will a pledge of self-reformation cut it. For self-reformation, you know, I'll tidy up myself, I'll get right myself, that is doomed to fail. Even if we convince others 
that we have turned a corner. Even should we convince ourselves that we've turned a corner, God is not fooled. As Paul told the Galatians, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. In the end, only those whose, whose repentance is sincere will be forgiven by God and will escape eternal punishment for their sin. Nothing else will do. And so ends our penultimate study in the life and ministry of Elijah. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.